Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group. Group, member FDIC and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to the OK Computer podcast takeover of the On the Tape feed. OK Computer is the latest offering for risk reversal media. We're going to cover all things tech, public and private markets, the intersection of Web 2 and Web 3. We have this amazing group of co-hosts and contributors. This is going to be in the On the Tape feed for a short period of time. So please follow OK Computer in your podcast stores so you get new episodes every Wednesday on your phone. Thanks. Welcome back to OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan. I am joined with the illustrious Kara Swisher. She needs no introduction to our listeners. Kara, welcome to OK Computer. Welcome back to OK Computer. Thank you. You still have this name of it, OK Computer. Do you still like the name or no? I never did, but go ahead. Fair enough. All right, listen, so Kara is obviously the host of Sway on the New York Times. She's also an opinion writer there. And listen, I got into podcasting. I think the first podcast I ever listened to was Recode. You have been an innovator in digital media for years. Obviously, I use the term illustrious. You've been at the forefront of tech reporting for over a couple of decades, but you made some kind of big news because you sold Recode in 2015 to Vox. You've been doing a podcast pivot for years there, but you're going back to Vox. Talk to us a little bit about that move. Not back. I mean, it's interesting. I've never left, first of all. Like I was doing Pivot and Pivot's a very big podcast. So it's actually bigger than any of them. The podcast universe, it's the one who makes the most money. And it's really, we have a fan base that's just exploding now for some reason. There's a real interest in Pivot. And so I wanted to focus a lot more on Pivot for one, because it's really promising in terms of other ancillary things like a premium service or TV, newsletter. There's all kinds of things that Pivot has not done at all. And already a good business is a podcast business as a premium version of it, specific ones. And so I can't really focus on it when I have another one there. And so what that was one issue is that Pivot is really exploding and the numbers are very obvious that you can watch it. Sway was growing well, it was going well, but I had a lot more control over Pivot. So that's one of the reasons. And the second thing is I really wanted to own my own IP and you can't do that in a big media company except for Box. And so one of the issues was owning my IP and having most of the control over data and staff and budget and revenue. And so that's one other thing. I've always been an entrepreneur and had control over that. I have it with the conference and everything else. And so I just was, as much as I love the New York Times, they don't give their staff control over anything. And so it's fine. That's the way they work. But I just was more entrepreneurial, especially when I wanted to do live things or expansion. So I couldn't really do much with the product without getting lots of okays from people. And as you know, I don't like speaking of okays. I'm not one who really solicits okays. I just go ahead and do it. And so it's a great place to be. I had a great run there, four or five years of writing. I had a lot to say I wanted to say about tech in, in that forum because I think it had impact and it obviously has. People have changed their opinions of Facebook and some of the others, I think due to some of our writing there. And I did want to sort of make the interview higher level and switch it out from just tech, which I did there. And so there's going to be a new podcast and interview podcast 
podcast at Vox, I guess, but with Vox that we're going to be making together. And I brought over someone who produced Sway with me to do that because she's also very entrepreneurial. And so we're going to be looking at TV and a bunch of other things, video and stuff like that. Yeah, well, it is amazing when you think about, for instance, my 79-year-old mother would see you on CNBC, on MSNBC, on other TV, but she wouldn't be a reader of your Recode blog, but she used to see you on the opinion page. And I think that it is appropriate when you think about all the palpitations that we've seen in media and digital media, that her finding you on the New York Times is likely to help her find you in other places going forward. And I think that's really important. I think some of our listeners forget, I mean, you were at the forefront of the this digital transformation of media because I remember All Things Digital being one of the first blogs. It was the first. Yeah, everyone's like, Substack. I'm like, we did that already. It was interesting. I mean, it's a different business model, obviously, and I have a lot of regard for Substack and what it's doing, but we were doing that very early. We did that within the Wall Street Journal. Remember, I worked at the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and the New York Times, so it's not like I hate old media in any way. I think they're great. You know, within the journal back then, they weren't entrepreneurial enough, and we left. So that's why we left, is they didn't want expand our all things franchise. I thought they were cheap about that myself. And they decided to do that daily. If you remember, it was a disaster. We felt the all things franchise was really interesting, but they decided not to do it. And at some point, I don't like to ask permission. I'd rather ask forgiveness. And in fact, I don't even want to ask forgiveness. You don't ask for forgiveness. I think the history of Recode was asking all of the tough questions, interview after interview. And, and I think it really spawned this whole industry, I guess, cottage of creators basically saying, hey, listen, if I have something to say, I'll find a way in which to say it. But I think what's very unique about your situation has always been that the people and largely men in tech or in business, their willingness to talk to you and have you ask them the tough questions. They know it's going to be asked. And I maybe this was a bit of a warm up. I don't know if you saw Mark Zuckerberg with Jim Cramer the other day. He did not sweat, Kara. <laughs> it's a pretty easy interview, I'd suspect. No, well, listen, I mean, I think from Jim's viewers, what they might be really interested in is like a better description of what the pivot of the name of the focus of the company means and how they're thinking about it. And I actually did think Mark did much better. I'm just curious, though, the one takeaway that I had from that interview is that the stock got basically cut in half from the time in which they announced. So it basically lost a half a trillion dollars in market cap. Obviously, Sheryl Sandberg recently left. And I thought that was a really interesting scenario because to be frank, I'm not sure that investigation on her way out is something that if everything was all cool would have happened here. But I'm curious how you think about this. I think he did the best job of explaining what the metaverse means, at least that I've heard over the last few months or so. So he said by the end of the decade, they hope to have a billion users doing things things in the metaverse and monetizing them. And again, here's a company with 3 billion monthly active users. It's not a far cry. But what does that mean? Does it mean just trying Oculus once? Does it mean, I'd like to know the specifics. He likes to throw out numbers. It probably means commerce. It probably means monetizing. I'd like to know what that means. That would be my follow-up question. It's like, does that mean one person who tries an Oculus once? Or does that mean, he loves to do that with the numbers. Remember, if, if you recall during the Russia thing, they're like, there's no instance of Russia on this platform. And I called them up and I said, do you know that? Or you just made that up? It was some number, 0.11%. I said, there's no way you could have done a full accounting of your system at this point. And so they always like to do that. I Obviously, look, it's where he wants to go. That's why one of the reasons probably Cheryl left. It's a very different environment. It's probably a more subscription-based environment. It'll have advertising, I guess, but that hasn't been creatively created yet. The stuff that Snapchat is doing is more interesting to me creatively. Some of the stuff the gamers are doing are really creative. I mean, good luck. 
he doesn't have anywhere to go, right? That's the thing. The social network is starting to go down. And that's it, right? So they've been monetizing Instagram really well. E-commerce, I think, is a big part of that. I think he did mention, which I think is pretty fascinating, when you think about WhatsApp, they've really never monetized that. So they're talking about a kind of business to a consumer monetization model. Listen, I think there's a lot of things there. You mentioned Snap, and I saw that Evan Spiegel is going to be at your code conference in september you seem to like him i think it's kind of interesting though that that company that is a ready for this a 22 billion dollar enterprise value which is kind of remarkable when you think about it it's a small company they're going to do five billion dollars in revenue primarily ads and facebook or meta whatever you want to call it this year is expected to do 125 billion with over a 400 billion dollar market cap and so it's just interesting that we still have the david and goliaths and i think when you started reporting on the internet 20 some years ago, I mean, a $22 billion enterprise profitable on an uh, adjusted basis company would have been huge, right? But this is like a really small company right now. So I'm just curious, how do they play? So is Twitter. They're all small compared to Facebook, right? At this moment in time. The reason I like Evan is because he's creative and the stuff he's making is interesting. And most of the stuff I see out of Facebook is copies of other people's and sort of pale copies most of the time. I haven't seen that much that's innovative out of them. And so that's all. It's the same thing with Microsoft back in the day versus Apple. Apple was so much smaller than Microsoft. Remember how small it was, how small, small. And I don't mean to say Snapchat's going to be bigger than Facebook. It's not. That would be hard. But when Apple was in trouble, its products were still innovative. And I was like, they're going to win because they're innovative. And I guess you could muscle your way into any market and muscle everything and copy everything, but it doesn't make you a great business. I just don't think it. And so if they're creative here, that would be great. Seems to be the same people. So there's no fresh new faces there that I see particularly. It's Cheryl leaving, but the same gang that's hung around Mark's basket forever is sort of jockeying for position. And so that's great. If they can do it, that's great. I like the Oculus, as I've said, but it's a small business. If you actually look at the business, it's small and it's a lot to wait an entire business on. Now they can hope, just like with AOL, that this other business just declines in a nice slow glide down, but down is where it's going. Listen, they still have dial-up customers at AOL. Listen, Yahoo just got lifted out of Verizon Media by Apollo. How about that? They had a big presence at Con Lion. I was there. I was sort of like, Yahoo's all over the place. They had advertising. A lot of purple. Our friend Katie Stanton was just named to the board. I don't know if you saw that. Oh, was she? Yeah, that's the Apollo. Oh, okay. And it's very interesting. Katie would tell you that her first job that she loved in tech was at Yahoo Finance in the late 90s. She was. I remember that. So let's see what they do there. You know, they have a lot of data on people. They've got a lot of users. You could do something with that. I don't think you can't. There's very few big groups of people on the internet. That's valuable. And you can make some hash out of it. Same thing with Twitter. It's small. Let's talk about small. Small and unprofitable is Twitter. We're going to get to that through Elon, but here's one thing. I really wanted to hit this because you've been spending, it seems a bit more time trying to figure out, you had Chris Dixon, Andreessen on Sway a few weeks ago, and it was a really fascinating conversation, especially when you consider where crypto as an ecosystem or an asset class, if you will, was at the time. It's bounced a little bit, but not really. And Chris is obviously, I think you just raised a $4 billion fund to invest in Web3. And your question really was, what the hell is Web3? He's the one with his famous thread who kind of defined it, I think, in the start of 2021. And then what's the future of it? And I think that this is really interesting because we've had this kind of war of words between 
between Jack Dorsey and Mark Andreessen and Elon got in there and a bunch of these tech luminaries. But Chris's comment to you, I thought was really interesting. I think this is the most important thing to counterbalance the power of the big tech companies. And I'm just curious, and this is the thing that got Jack Dorsey snapping back in December saying, who owns Web3? It's the VCs. And so you're going to create the very thing that you're trying to counterbalance. I'm just curious what you took away from Chris's conversation on the topic. Well, I think he's on his back foot, right? Of course, he's on his back foot right now, given the situation there. The numbers are really down, and I don't see them going back up anytime soon. Wait, you're already speaking, Kara, like a cryptophobe when you say the number is down. I'm not a cryptophobe. Just by being like, a, I don't know, the anti-cryptos attack me all the time because I'm like, I don't know. Maybe there's some contract thing. Maybe there's some collectible thing. Maybe there's some financial things. Obviously, one of the things that a lot of the Bitcoin, like Michael Saylor, is trying to get rid of all the other coins, right? Because they're all, most of them are Ponzi schemes, essentially. And so because there's so many and it's so Wild West, you're going to have a lot of grift. And so what I wanted to sort of explore with him is how do you clean that up? How do you make it into a real business? And is it going to be useful? Is it just a speculative asset? Is it a commodity? Is it like a stock, an asset? And so I think a lot of that has to be sorted out. And so I think people are uncomfortable and you're like, I don't know. I don't know. I can't tell. There seems to be some stuff here that many people I think are smart find interesting. There's also a lot of things that many people I think are smart find illegal and problematic and not scalable. And so again, what I like to do is say, all right, well, let's figure out where it's going. People are so reductive these days. It's really hard to have a conversation with anybody. And some of the stuff is really interesting. And some of the stuff is clearly illegal. And obviously, all of it's unregulated. And even stable coins, they, you don't know where, how many dollars and what. And how do they, like, which is what I was saying about Mark, is like, a billion what? I would like specifics. And what it tends to do is these people tend to throw out numbers, whether it's Mark Zuckerberg or the Bitcoin people, but they don't tell you what the specifics are. And so therefore, it's a lot of hype until I actually see the actual business of it. Which comes back to regulation. And you had Gary Gensler, the head of the SEC at Code in September, and you guys spent a lot of time on that topic. And, you know, it was Parit actually interviewing, which I thought was pretty great. It was kind of surgical in a way. And he kind of refused to frame the regulatory path forward, which I think is one of the things that really frustrates a lot of practitioners in the space. But here's one thing that I'm curious, and you got to get him. Have you met this Sam Bankman Freed? He is the founder of FTX. And he's really capturing the imagination of both crypto and other folk. And I thought what Dixon said to you was really interesting is that this feels a bit more like 08, some sort of big macro event with what's going on. And so here, Bankman Freed has kind of stepped up as the kind of Warren Buffett in the space offering lifelines. And it's really interesting because we talked about it a little bit on Fast Money last night. It was almost like the island of misfit crypto toys that he's trying to be like this buyer of last resort. And he may end up with a lot of crap if you think about it due to the transparency or the lack thereof. He could. He could be zillionaire, right? It's the same thing going on with Binance. Suddenly that guy's under siege. And I think it's just in the beginning of the internet, and it's not as similar. So before these anti-crypto people go after me, it's similar, but not the same is how I will say it. There was a lot of crap in the early internet, a lot, a lot of crap. And then there was consolidation and ownership and they built walls around it, essentially. And of course, it got too consolidated and too centralized. And so this is a reaction to that. But I suspect this is going to get just as centralized in some fashion. And of course, there'll be regulatory scrutiny because it's money and governments aren't prone to give up that control very easily. 
Yeah, I mean, all the on-ramps are very centralized. And to your point, I think one of the remaining sort of pillars of the bull case for Bitcoin in particular is this kind of censorship resistance. And I do think it's funny that some of the loudest voices on this topic over the last few years have really gone quiet. So when we come back, we're going to hit all things Elon Musk. So stick around. Hey, listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy-to-use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to Current.com slash OK. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. So have you checked on Elon? I suspect you have his phone number. I do. He's not talking to me right now. He tends to go in and out of touch with me. Well, he's not talking to anybody. He hasn't tweeted in a week, which I think is really interesting. Well, I have one theory that maybe because his tweets drive so much engagement on the platform, maybe he's trying to get them to miss the quarter badly so he can negotiate the price lower. No. That seems dumb. I know. I'm just thinking a hot picture. The last thing he tweeted, gas price, it's probably $2 over most people's gas prices. So he's signaling anti-Bidenism just because Biden didn't hug him. That seems to be that. And then the birth rate. I'm not sure what he's doing around the birth rate. But I guess the main point is that he hasn't tweeted in a week and he was very, very active. And so he's had a bad month, if you will. He started out in early June by saying he has a super bad feeling about the economy. That was June 3rd. He had the back to the office decree where he caught a lot of steam. And He was speaking to Twitter and then he spoke to Tesla people about his back to office. Maybe he's decided to shut up a little bit. Probably a good idea. The SEC at one point did have some sway, if you will, over his tweeting, if you recall. But then on June 12th, he said something that the company had a very tough quarter. He was trying to rally the troops a little bit. Then he said, and I think this was in around the same time, that the Giga Berlin and Austin were money furnaces. And it really goes on and on. Now, here's the one. And I want to get your take on this. So he voted for this woman, Myra Flores, who is a pusher of QAnon conspiracy theories. This was a special election in Texas for Congress. Okay. She's pushed a whole host of just Jan 6 conspiracy theories. The list goes on and on. So he said it was the first Republican he ever voted for. And then responding to a Twitter user, he said he's leaning towards voting for DeSantis. Now you and I have talked about DeSantis in Florida. I mean, there's a bunch of funny business going on there with obviously Disney and a whole host of other companies. What about this hard turn by him? It just seems like something that is not going to be particularly attractive to Tesla customers. Okay. That Tesla stock is down 40%. It was over a trillion dollars. Yeah. I don't think that's why. Well, a lot of the acceleration to the downside, now granted, you could say that there was a lot of weakness in the overall market, but really started around his Twitter turn. And I'm just curious your thought on that. 
he goes up and down. This is just my personal experience is one year he didn't talk to me the whole year. And then he suddenly got really friendly. I don't know. He goes up and down. I don't think we really care about what he thinks about most things. And I thought he went a little overboard on Twitter. Like, I don't really care what you think about corn. That's what it felt like. Like, really? You're weighing in on this? The political stuff, I think he was quite, I would say, justifiable and being irritated by the Biden administration for not acknowledging his credit around electric cars. They kept having Mary Barra and others at the White House. What does it say about him as a leader, though, Karen? Well, he's just mad. He is a pioneer. But he's going to carry on for months and months? Yes, yes, really? yes. Yeah, and then he's been, I guess he must be hanging out with Peter Thiel and that gang, and so he got a little red-pilled on the on the this stuff. I think Peter probably- Peter Thiel, who fired him from PayPal 20 years ago? Who knows who's around him? I don't think his family loves this Twitter thing. That's what I heard. The family's like, get the hell out of there. You know, sometimes you get narcissistic and grandiose and then you realize what's happened, I guess. I don't know. I just, it's hard to be him, I suspect. He's self-acknowledged. He's got some issues, not mental, but he has some troubles. Someone who spent a lot of time with him recently said he's in his demon week. And I was like, I knew what that meant because I've been the subject of one of his demon things. I got a lot of crazy emails at one point, but then he was nice. And so I think the problem Elon has is that everybody's staring at him and he also likes attention and therefore you do a lot for attention. And I think ultimately underneath visionary, amazing brain has done astonishing things around space and cars and things like that. I could use a whole lot less of his pontification on free speech because I think it's hypocritical in many instances. Don't say anything at my company, but you should be able to say what you want. You should hush. That's on that stuff. But anyway, he's a mixed bag and we'll see. It seems to have to pay this amount for Twitter. Maybe they're not playing along with his wanting a lower price. And then he's got to figure out a way to get out if he has to pay that price. That's a crazy price to pay for something that's worth half as much. Well, to your point, It's a $30 billion enterprise value right now. It's going to be much higher if he does pay $54.20. And going back to your point about Snap, this is a company that's basically growing revenues faster, monetizing better, same revenue base that has a $22 billion enterprise value. The cost makes no sense. I do want to hit one thing really quickly. So your point about free speech is a really important one, right? And this was a tweet from a Chinese Twitter user back on April 25th after I think Musk made his bid for the company. And it was talking about Tesla's second largest market behind the US in 2021 was China. Chinese battery makers are the major supplier for Tesla. It goes on and on. Jeff Bezos quote tweeted that. And he said, interesting question. Did the Chinese government just gain a bit of leverage over the town square? Well, it is trolling, but I think that you could say the same thing that you just said about Musk as a visionary as this, uh, space rockets, this and that. Whatever. You could say about Bezos and you don't have all the drama. Well, a little bit. You don't have the conflict of potential interest that you do with the Chinese. And so to me, I think the free speech. Except he gets a lot of products from China. Are you kidding? He gets a lot of products from China. Jeff Bezos is always just slapping at Elon and back and forth. And he did that in that interview with me a lot of penis jokes around the rockets. And so a lot of them should stay off of Twitter, maybe, because they're not any smarter than you or I. Jeff Bezos tends to like to show, oh, look, I was right. Every time someone tweets an Amazon.bomb thing, he's like, this is just now. I have this old Business Week framed as a reminder, the risky bet that Wall Street disliked was AWS, which generated revenue more than $62 billion a year. That's like a humble brag. They were wrong. Looks like it. So it seems like if you're one of the world's richest men, you don't need this much love, but Okay. Yeah, I think he just needs a hug, as I keep saying here. Yeah, I like Andy Jassy. Yeah, 
Well, let's talk about that for a second. Okay, that's really interesting. So Andrew Jazzy took over. He ran AWS. This was also in the early days of AWS. And you probably remember, you were probably reporting on a lot. This was a very controversial turn for this company that had not been making profits, had been pushing them back into these other sorts of things. And if they didn't have AWS right now, literally this company, their retail operations are being valued at nothing. So the stock Amazon topped out the week that Bezos handed over the reins to Jazzy. It was down at its lows nearly 50%. It's down about 40%. It's massively underperforming its mega cap peers. Microsoft, Apple, and Google are all down about 20%. So my question to you is, I know Jazzy's been at your events. I'm sure you've gotten to know him. Are we going to see the sort of succession that we saw with Tim Cook at Apple, with Satya at Microsoft, with Sundar at Google? Because all of those over the last decade, let's call it, have been massively successful. And in some ways, the Jazzy handover might be setting the stage for the next big move. Because I think about this. There was an article in, in one major publication last week that Jazzy has to now fix the overexpansion of Bezos, which I thought was funny. There's been some mis-execution. Well, let me just say, I don't blame Jassy for this. Look, it started to go up like crazy. This is maximum. It was in the 90s in March 2020 when the pandemic started. And then it went crazy upwards to like 188 in July of 2021. And now it's down back to the 109, not the 90s, but 109. It's where it was. And so that was a pandemic spike because everyone was using Amazon. So I don't particularly blame Andy Jassy for anything. Now, then they are facing headwinds of more labor. They've got to be spending on labor. They're going to have to deal with recycling and that kind of stuff. They're going to deal with regulatory issues. He's inheriting a lot of more difficult things, but I don't blame him at all. He did a great job with AWS. Thank God for Andy Jassy. So a lot of what he's doing is cleaning up from the pandemic expansion, which he was not responsible for. That's right. Well, here's one for you, because I know that you're a very proud mom and you and I both have kids around the same age. Your older set are mid to late teenagers like mine. And I've read and listened to you for years and years. And oftentimes when you're talking about consumer internet or social, you did so through the lens of your boys. You channeled their sort of stuff. And I always thought that was really interesting because I would do the same with my kids. And a lot of it was around that confluence of social and mobile. And now you have these beautiful addition to your family, two little kids. What do you think going forward? I found your interview with John Doerr about climate tech fascinating on Sway. And how do you think the next phase, the next 15, 16, 17 years of, of the tech coverage that you have, thinking about it through the lens of your young kids now, it might be just totally different. We, we might be focused on these really big problems here. Sure. You know, I don't know. I'm worried about climate because I have young kids. I'm worried about democracy because I have young kids. I've never thought about leaving this country. It's the first time I'm like, oh, God, if this crazy Supreme Court keeps misbehaving, I'm worried for my marriage. I'm worried for, and I don't say that lightly. I'm not one of these, I'm going to go to Canada kind of people, but Lord, I don't want my daughter to be in a country that this is how they treat women when the rest of Europe is great or the rest of the democratic world is great on these issues. So I think about that a lot. And then, of course, obviously, climate change is the most important issue, which is why I had John on. And so I'm going to be doing much more of that because how to solve this problem is really significant. And so I think about it, not just for my younger kids, but my older kids, too, is like, I'm not going to be here. You're not going to be here, but they're going to have to deal with what we're doing here. And so you see a lot of these climate emergencies and and you go, ha, huh, this is going to be a challenge for a very long time going forward. It's something I share with Elon Musk. I think he saw that very early. He was that last time he was sort of losing his mind. It was because he felt Tesla had to succeed. And so did his space endeavors because 
he thought the world existential crisis was happening with climate change. And I, I agreed with him. I thought he was a little bit over the top, but now I see, okay, I see why his concern was. And so anyone who has, he has a lot of kids too, by the way, I think anyone who has kids and thinks about it almost continually about what the world will be like for them when they're older and, and their children too. It is obviously an existential problem. I think that your conversation with John Doerr, who is obviously a legendary VC, he said to you, it needs to become a top two priority for voters here. And I guess I wonder, and it brings me back to Musk's, and maybe it's just a fad, but this political turn and that, that article in the Washington Post from a couple weeks ago about Peter Thiel helping build big tech. Now he wants to tear it all down. That libertarian bent that we're seeing in a lot of these tech billionaires, it actually doesn't, in my opinion, advance those sorts of causes. I think vast difference between Peter Thiel and Elon Musk. Well, he's a financier is what he is. He's like the modern day version of JP Morgan or anybody else who like to manipulate through money. Not a creator. I love asking you these questions. I know that you are a in contact with a lot of these people. I know that you know a lot of their close friends. And I think the psyche around these issues are really important. I am worried about this handful of Web One, and you talked about this a lot. They built this whole thing up, and now they want to tear it down. And when you see people like Musk, when John Doerr just said to you that he has advanced the acceleration of electric vehicles by five years, and he's pushing all of these major OEMs, and that's great. Except, though, when he goes and has this political turn, I think it really does denigrate a lot of that progress because he's appealing to a group of people that don't believe in climate change, that they don't believe in the same thing things that you and I do about individual rights. This Maya Flores, this is a problem. And he voted for her. And if he starts supporting DeSantis, that's a problem. Don't think that that won't come back on tech companies who want to be in Florida and stuff like that. So I find it very problematic. Yeah, it's problematic. I would agree. I think he has a different game going on. I think he thinks he can convince them. I've had him tell me that about Trump. One time, I remember him saying around gay and lesbian issues, obviously, he's a support. He has was, when I spoke to him, a very strong one. And he said, I can handle, I can convince him. And I was like, listen, Jesus, I'm sorry, this guy's really quite an unsavable character, an unsavory and unsavable character. And so the problem with the right now, they're sort of embracing him and he's the best thing ever. He'll turn on them too when he wants to. That's the thing. I'm sort of like, just wait 10 minutes and we'll see what happens. I think eventually he will shift again, as he always does. He did like Obama. He did like certain Democrats. I just think he wants nobody to bother him. That's my impression of him, is that he wants nobody in his business. And so anybody who does that, like a Ron DeSantis, he gets influenced by. That's all. And by the way, so what? Let him do what he wants. It's not my business if you want to be a complete troll your whole life when you're a visionary. And if you want to change your incredible visionary accomplishments and swim around in the mud for a while? Well, I think that's a shame. I'll just say this, is that for all the advances that he's made as it relates to electrification of automobiles and what he's done with space and that sort of thing, I think he runs the risk with his views on free speech and what he wants to do with Twitter of really setting back the clocks on so many of these issues. And you just mentioned climate and we have gun control and we have reproductive rights and we have same-sex marriage. I mean, there's a lot of things that are tearing at the fabric of our country right now and his voice and his influence could be used in a much more positive way that are affecting Americans every day. And so I don't actually give a shit. If he got hit by a bus tomorrow, and I'm not wishing it on him, the electrification of auto would still happen. We'd still be moving forward with rockets. We might not have the same focus as Mars. You know, I mean, so my point is, it's like he's just one man and he has influence and I don't think he's using it in the right way right now. 
Well, guess what? Never had kids. They never do what you want. You know what? There's a lot of people and a lot of people have influence and he's not the only one. And what unfortunately what happens, we coalesce around a Trump or a Musk and we think they're that everything matters and they become this sort of Rashomon test on all of us, right? So there's lots of people besides Elon Musk in this world. I'm certain of it. And I'm certain there's a lot of people who will help us and a lot of people will hurt us. So why don't we focus on that? That's the problem is we tend to like coalesce around one great leader and it's a mistake on our part to put so much faith. How much influence does he actually have versus how much we think he has? Well, I probably heard you say this. I know you're a comic fan with great power comes great responsibility. I think he's acting like an asshole on Twitter. He should stop doing it. That's all. Otherwise, get back to the good stuff. We love it. We love the good stuff, Elon. That's a great way to end it. I really appreciate your time. I love chatting with you. I always love your opinions. I can't wait to see what you do with Vox. You are not returning. And code is coming. I will be at code September 6th, I think. You should be there. Let me just tell you, it's quite a thing. I was there last year. It was it was amazing. No, it's amazing this year. Maybe Elon will be there and you can tell him you think he's a chode. He'll give you a Rudy Giuliani slap on the back. Yeah, that was amazing. I was nearly fu- pushed over. I was like, that's a Staten Island hello. Give me a break. Yeah, that's that's what they do there. That would be what Pete Davidson would do. All right, well, listen, Kara Swisher, thank you so much. We're really looking forward to see what happens over there at Vox with you, and we'll check you at Code in the fall. All right, thanks, Dan. Thanks, Kara. See you, bye. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.